Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1, it says, And now the feast of unleavened bread draw near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and the captains on how he, he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And so you see the story of Judas Iscariot. And, you know, generally, not even depending what church you go through, you know, some churches might not, when you don't teach verse by verse, you kind of hop around, you might not hit certain stories. Everybody knows of Judas. It's like David and Goliath. You come to it with this, oh, oh yeah, I know who Judas is. I know what happened. And you come into the story, and sadly, I think sometimes we, we can miss stuff because we already know it. You know what I mean? You're kind of like, okay, yeah, I've already heard this one. You know, I know what happens in it. And, and especially when you're raised in church, you kind of have these stories, but to slow down and look at these and go, okay, what's God doing? What's God revealing? And that's where I almost wish we could just rename the people in it so you, so you kind of have a fresh look at it. But let's try to do that as we go through, kind of have a fresh look at what is going on here. What is the, what is God trying to teach us through this? And in verse 1 when it says, now the feast of unleavened bread draw near, which is called Passover. Now, it's, an, it's you know, a Jewish holiday Passover was, isn't something we celebrate now. He kind of, the least feast of unleavened bread and Passover, Luke kind of just combines it all here. It's a season of celebration and remembrance. This is the Passover where the Jewish people were freed from captivity by God from the Egyptians. The Egyptians had them enslaved. Moses came and, you know, set my people free, and they go through the whole process. And finally, that last evening, you know, the, the command is given, hey, if you have blood on the doorposts and the top of your your jam, the, the, the angel of death will pass over and not take your first child, and you'll be free. And they were delivered from bondage from Egypt. And this, this is now at this point has been a tradition, a celebration for over 1,500 years going on. And so you can imagine how many people were traveling to Jerusalem at this holiday. This is the biggest holiday of the Jewish calendar of coming together, celebrating this time that God had saved them, had delivered them from Egypt. And it, it's interesting, too, to me that, you know, you look at a holiday, and, and if you were to pick a holiday, to, a way to name a holiday, to me, this is interesting. This isn't the day we were set free. This isn't Freedom Day. This isn't, you know, uh, Liberation Day. This isn't Exodus Day. This is the Passover the time when God came and judged the Egyptians and passed over us, delivered us by the blood of a lamb that we would put that night. And so this is the season, this is what's going on. And the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how to kill Jesus. We've, we've seen this repeatedly. In verse 2 it says, they sought how to, the priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, but they feared the people. And so at this time, with all the people traveling to Jerusalem, Jesus wasn't as, uh, I guess you would say, famous in Jerusalem. 
but he was in Judea, and so you have people that have traveled afar that have heard of him. You have a lot of Judeans there. The crowds are great. The Jewish people cannot just deal with Jesus the way they want the leaders. They, they can't just get rid of him easily because they fear these groups of people and the crowds of people. And so they're seeking a way to destroy them. And we've seen them try to come in and cause and, and ask about taxes and trick them and put them in situations repeatedly to, to cause a political change and, and, and you know, get some experts in here and how we can entrap them. And then the, the Pharisees and the scribes kind of even go in their separate ways to try to attack them. And then in verse 3, we have, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now, Satan is kind of interesting when you sit and, and you look, in a sense, at Scripture going, okay, who is Satan? I mean, if, if you just walked into church and you've never heard Satan in a biblical thing, you think of a guy with a pitchfork running around and, you know, partying down under where all the bad people go or something. And Satan is described in Revelation 9 of that dragon who was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, a deceiver of the whole world. And he was cast out of heaven with the rest of the angels down to earth. So you had Satan, who is an angel, who was also called in Ezekiel 28, if you look at the account, an anointed cherubim. He was not a pitchfork in horns or anything like that, but covered in gemstones. Very beautiful. And he was highly exalted in the place he was at, but yet it wasn't enough. He wanted to be more than he was created for. His purpose, his desire, was to be like God, to be like the Most High. And because of that choice in choosing to be like the Most High and to be in rebellion of God's plan and purpose for his creation, he was cast out and the angels who were created for a purpose and decided to reject that were also cast out with him. And when they were cast out, you know, you can see the jealousy that kicked in when you see man and God's purpose for man. Angels' primary purpose is what? To be messengers to God. They are here to serve men. And Satan, I can guarantee you, does not like that. He did not like his purpose. He wanted to be like the Most High. I always think it's interesting in Scripture when it says he wants to be like the Most High, not the Most High. You know why? Because he knows he cannot be the Most High. But you sit there and you look at this, and he desires to be like the Most High. And so he was cast out, and he enters into Judas. Now, it's interesting, you know, people go, okay, well, he was demon-possessed, obviously, not just demon. It was Satan himself possessed Judas to do this. And again, was it... Uh, I don't think it was like Judas had no choice. He was possessed and had no free will. Judas still had free will, but his heart and his desires lined up with that desire to be contrary to God's plan, to be against what he was created for and the purpose. And many look at Judas as you go through this and kind of um, have interesting, um, maybe even twisted views on Judas. Some think, well, Judas really believed in who Jesus was. And what he wanted to do was force Jesus' hand to become the Messiah, and that's why he did it. 
or, or you know, Judas was, you know, possessed by Satan. He had no choice in the matter. He really didn't want to do it. And that's why when he realized what happened, he went out and wanted to get rid of the money and killed himself. And, you know, he had no choices in the matter. And they, they get all these kind of fanciful stories. And it, um, they even go to the, the name. We don't have really any um, solid evidence why he was called um, Iscariot. Some people think, okay, that's the region he was from. He was the only one not from Galilee like the others, so he felt excluded and wasn't part of the group, and that's why he decided to betray him. You know, he felt as an outcast or something like that. Or, or the word Iscariot is very close to the word that was um, used for an assassin. And, you know, there was a group of assassins that were against the Roman rule and against the Roman government. And when Jesus is like talking, you know, gives to Caesar what Caesar, he just was done with it. He wanted somebody who was going to overthrow Rome and kick him out. And obviously, clearly, Jesus wasn't doing that. So he decided to betray him. You know, you have all these fanciful stories. But if you slow down and just look at the scripture, I don't think it is as complicated as that. I think many times when we see somebody or something happen, especially tragically on a large scale, we think there's got to be some great evil in that person. There's got to be something greater than just sin nature. You know, we look for it. When you, when you hear of somebody doing something horrible, that's your first thought is, wow, what, what deep, dark, evil, you know, thing or demon or something. You know, I can't believe this person did that. Or, you know, you know and I do the same thing. You hear these school shootings, you wonder, like, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist or nothing like that, but you just wonder, what was the mental state of that person? I think the main thing that I've ran across, even in lives of people you're around and deal with that end up falling into sin, there wasn't this greater, darker evil. It was simple things. It's simple human nature. It's simple, easy to fall into sin. Simple choices that were made and lines that were crossed that become the sin. And, you know, as we continue and we look at the Scripture, it says in verse 4, it says, So when he went his way and conferred with the chief priest and the captains, how he might betray him to them. So he went his way. They didn't approach him. Judas went and found them. Okay? He took off and went and found them. And Matthew 26, 14 and 15 says, Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. So, you know, it's not like he's running around crazy, out of his mind, totally demon-possessed like we see possession in Scripture. He is greedy. He wanted money. He went to them and said, how much will you pay me for me to betray him? That doesn't seem like some great sinister thing. I mean, it's just simple. He desired money and the things that come along with money. He got to the point maybe realizing, man, Jesus is talking about the whole Jerusalem falling down and all this stuff going crazy. I'm not up for the suffering thing. I was good when it looked like we were going to rule and reign and I was going to have a nice seat and position. But now this isn't looking good. And, and you know what? I just want some money. I'm going to deal with this. You know, Judas is the one when the perfume was poured out, go, oh, look, look at all the waste of this money. It could have been used for the poor. You know, he's the one entrusted to take care of the money and those things. And it's interesting to see this. He was simply greedy. He was just after the money. He was self-seeking. He was worried about himself. 
And he, see, he saw after. The Jewish leaders didn't come and find him and how much can we give you? What if we bribe you with this? He went to them. His heart was after those things. And they were glad. The chief priests were glad when they saw this. And they agreed to give him the money. Verse 6 says, So he promised and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So, hey, when we get him alone, when nobody's around, I'll get him where, where nobody else is going to see what happens. So you guys can do it in dark, not out in public. When the multitudes aren't there, I'm going to betray him. And it's interesting. So the first person we see here, Judas, was simply greedy, was after money, was self-seeking. Not after the plan of God. Not after what God wanted to do. And you would think walking with Jesus, being one of the twelve, and so loved, and in that situation, and knowing the truth, that he wouldn't be so easily deceived or swayed by these things. You know, it's easier to think, oh yeah, this guy must have had some great, great, great thing. Yes, what he did and what was caused from it ends up horrible and a great tragedy, but I think it's simple sin. Just a simple sin in his life, his simple desire to serve himself instead of God and God's plan. And here the Jewish leaders, this other group, are glad. They're glad to find out, hey, yeah, we'll gladly pay the money. We're gladly going to pay the money to betray him. We're, we're happy to finally get this guy. That's all, you know. I'm surprised it was that cheap with everything they've been going through, right? And he betrays them, and they're glad to see it. I mean, can you imagine they're sitting there, and they're trying to figure this out, and they're all in there getting together. They're there. The leaders are there. And they're sitting there, and a guard comes up to them and says, Hey, hey, What's going on? Well, one of his 12 disciples are here. Well, what the heck does this guy want? Why is he here? Why do we don't need this guy? What's the deal? What? Oh, he wants to betray him. Oh, really? Really? Oh, that's, you know, what a twist of events. In that sense. And so you see this desire and the chief's priest's desire. And, and, you know, you think they were glad. Were they after money? What would the chief priests want? What was their plan? Their plan was their selfishness. We want our power. We want our things. We want the things the way we have them. You know, they could even say, oh, look, we're, we're here for God. You know, we're here about God. This guy is breaking all our rules. You know, we, we're, you know, we're very religious and this guy is obviously God wants to get rid of him. You know, and he's put us here to do it in power. I mean, it's our call. And so they were self-seeking. After the money, after the power, after the control, the pride of who they were, but let us pause a minute. Let's think about this. You know, you know, some people go, oh yeah, he was possessed by Satan. Oh, the chief priests, they were all possessed by Satan. I don't know about that. You think Satan would really, really concerned about how much money Judas was going to get out of the deal? Do you think Satan would have needed him to ask for a single dime? I mean, if Satan, if, Satan, if, I, you know, if Satan was running the show here, fully running the show here, and Judas had no say in it, I think he would have just gone and betrayed him, not asked for a dime in it. You know, it's, Satan's not worried about how much Judas was going to make on the deal, or the chief priest for that fact. You know, I don't think that, you know, Satan was worried about, oh, wait, how much, you know, I want to make sure the chief priests are happy with their position and their power and where they're at. But it always all kind of puzzles me with some things is going, what was Satan's motive in this? What was Satan's motive? We know Satan isn't all-knowing. He's, you know, he's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. But he does know the Scripture. He does quote the Scriptures. He does know them. 
Wouldn't you think knowing the scripture would be like, just leave this Jesus guy alone, let him die of a ripe old age, and we're fine? Why would we want to encourage Judas to do anything? Why would we want to encourage the end? You know, there's some speculation there, but it amazes me to see, and I think sometimes, even with Satan, knowing the truth, knowing the truth of heaven, knowing who God is, how powerful God is, how could you ever think you would somehow be like the Most High? How do you even believe that lie? And again, he believed that lie and continues to believe that lie. And I think many times when you look at Satan and you, you see people believing a lie that is just so absurd, it's like, how can you believe that? Because you've told it to yourself. You see a situation, everybody knows the truth of what happened, and they're convinced because they've convinced themselves that, no, no, that's not what happened. And I think it's very possible here that Satan himself believes, you know what? I'm going to come out ahead. I'm still going to win this somehow. Oh, yeah. We'll kill Jesus. It'll be okay. I'm, I'm going to come out ahead. He still believes the lie, and I believe he still believes the lie today. Even after the cross, even after the fell, either he's just vengeful to the end, or somehow he's hanging on because he thinks something's going to change to his advantage. You know, he wasn't created for these things. He desired to do his own thing, to believe the lie of why he was created, his existence. To sit there, and I, I just can't grasp the level in, of, of self-unbelief it have to be. I mean, he can read through Revelation. He can see what's going to happen. Hasn't God's track record been good? But so self-deceived. He is the great deceiver, and he is deceived. And it's kind of scary in that sense to see when people get deceived. Because I don't think it's, again, this great deep-rooted evil in somebody it is a sin, and it's a sin that they suddenly choose to believe. And you stop believing God's truth, you stop believing God's word, and you start believing a sin, and you so convince yourself of something that is so many times so obvious to others and those around you that, no, this is good, this is going to be okay. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make this work. And so you have that group there who they have, they have rejected God's plan, what they were created for, what they were designed for. Then in verse 7 it says, Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover must be killed. He sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us that we may eat it. I kind of think it's kind of interesting here as you go through just little things like this that kind of stick out to me. So he's sitting there, and they got to, okay, we got to go prepare the Passover, right? Now, most of the times, the Passover was prepared by a group of women more and cooking and the preparing of it and getting it ready, you know? And you would think out of the 12 disciples, repeatedly you see in the Gospels, Peter, James, and John always kind of end up this inner group in with Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration, that they were kind of like, you had the disciples, then you had the elite disciples, right? But yet you hear them having to go do here. We're going to have you guys just go do the manual work of getting ready for the Passover. Nothing spectacular about it. So I figured I'd just mention that. You know, they're willing to go and just prepare in that sense. And so they said to him, where do, we, where do you want us to prepare? Okay, where are we going to go? I mean, this Jerusalem, it's busy. There's going to be a hard time finding anywhere. You know, it's kind of uh, getting a reservation would be a hard thing to do. And he said to them, Behold, 
When you enter the city, a man will be carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Now, this is kind of, to us, kind of seems like, dang, you know, you enter a city, you imagine a busy city and all this going on, right? Well, a man carrying a pitcher of water would not have been common. When man did carry water at this time, it was in a pouch. A pitcher was usually somebody going, drawing from a well. It wouldn't have been a job, per se, for a man. And so it must, you know, this kind of talks about how busy it must have been, because if you're trying to get things ready for a house and hey, you know, you're so busy that, hey, they just send anybody to go do it. Who cares what normal job this is? So they, you know, the disciple, here you got Peter and, and John kind of playing, where's Waldo? Find the guy with the pitcher in the city, right? But I have a feeling it would have been more obvious than that, possibly. You know, it wasn't too much of a search. Who knows, you know, maybe they were sitting there and arguing, and finally the guy walks by, you know. I would, you know, sometimes you would just wish you had a little more into the story. Like, wouldn't it have been cool to follow them in to see how long this took? Was it like they walked in, ah, oh, there's a guy right there. They're running around getting frustrated. Because you, you, you guys never do that. You know, you never go on a trip with somebody looking for something and get frustrated or nothing. Or, you know, this is like a, a Jesus-style... Um, um, you know, a Jesus-style treasure hunt kind of map thing. But, um, so they're in there and they go. And so it says in verse 11, when, they, when you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, there is a guest room where I may eat my Passover with my disciples. And then he will show you a large furnished room, up, upper room, there make ready. And so they went and they found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. What I find interesting in this is it's not like this big thing, but it still is. They went. They simply went, right? And it just shows you where they're at over the time, you know. There isn't this question. I would have had a question. What, we're going to go in the city. We're going to find a man carrying a purse, I mean a jar, okay? And we're going to follow that guy into a house. We're not going to talk to him. We're just going to like sneak behind him. When he enters the house, we're going to jump in that. You know, what's the guy turns around and asks what we're doing, you know? So we follow him into the house, and then we're going to ask that guy, hey, do you got a room for us, this and this? The teacher has need of it, you know? But they go and they do it. I mean, I just, you know, me, I would have been there sitting there going, okay, is this the right guy with the right picture? I know this is strange. You would go in the house. You go in. I mean, me and Peter would have been arguing about who gets to tell, ask this guy, is this the right house? Right? But they do it, which is just simple obedience. Going in, simply finding. You know, the whole place is booked, but they're simply following God's plan. Trusting in Him. They've been walking with Him enough to trust without questioning, without, you know, thinking of all the other possible problems this would have. You know, what size is the room? I mean, can you imagine... You guys get ready for an event. If you're going to rent an event place, could you imagine your husband coming to you and just go, hey, you know, I know we're doing the wedding. Just go follow a guy over. He'll sell you a place we can just set up there. You know, and just get it ready. And a cut, you know, it ain't going to happen. You know, and so they went and they trusted. In verse 14, and when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. And he said to them, with great fervent desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Fervent desire, a burning, a yearning, a desire, something that's consuming is the thought, like a furnace. It is consuming. He's, the desire has been consuming. He's been waiting for this. This time. Um, 
This isn't their first Passover they've spent together, but this one is definitely going to be different. You know, it's in a place and it's set apart and almost somewhat of a secret place. Reminds you, Judas is waiting for an opportunity to catch him. And actually, it seems like a good time if everybody's sharing a meal and is indoors, it would be a good place. And so Jesus kind of sets this up. You can see it kind of maybe being done a little more in secret because he has so many things he desires to share with them. And if you like homework or don't like homework, if you read through John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapters 13 through 17, kind of goes over the things he shares before this meal with his 12 disciples. You think of the time that they're ready, their hearts are ready. You know, he knows this is the time, this is the hours, it's going to be short, my suffering is coming, and he, this desire is there. The purpose, the three years, the calling him from when he called him, knowing that this day, this moment is coming. You know, it, it, it's fervent desire. I mean, you, you think of everything leading up to this. The anticipation, the, the things that would be driving you nuts up to this moment almost as a person, as Jesus was walking towards this, he desired to meet with him, this last kind of get together and, and go over things and lay out things. It's interesting how all three, all four Gospels have this, but John expands on this so many more where it's through four chapters this last evening, what's going on. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all are written fairly close after the crucifixion where John, the Gospel of John, is written about 90 years after. And I think sometimes when something happens right away and you write it down, you don't realize the extreme importance of some things. And I think as John went in and on and he continued to walk with the Lord for so many years, he realized how important those things on that night were and laid them out in the scripture. And so that's where I think John kind of expands on it, on how important these things were. If you sat down and you were going to a loved one who was leaving you, who was passing away, and they say, hey, I, I want to spend the last meal with you, a last evening, a last get, you know, thing. I want to give you the last advice. You'd be all ears, and you'd expect of what you would hear them to be very important. You know, there was a, 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 a theologian who was teaching at a college, and uh, man, it's been a while since I forgot his name. I told the story years ago, but... He was teaching, and he was a theologian and, and studied and all this back in the 1800s, and he was teaching in a seminary, just one of their uh, weekly morning kind of devotion things. And when he was done teaching, he kind of just leaned forward in the pulpit. And they waited, and they waited, and then they realized he passed away in the pulpit. And then I have a feeling there was a lot of students going, what did he just say? <laughs> Here you have this great theologian who studied all these things and you just heard his last teaching and that was the last thing God wanted him to say. Maybe would have paid attention a little better. Yeah. And so that night, you know, Jesus' heart being poured out. Verse 16, it says, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of, or no longer eat until 
It is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 17, and he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said to them, this is, or take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so as the Passover supper goes on and they go through the tradition of it, there's usually about four cups given. So when he talks about, hey, this is a cup I won't eat, drink, drink or eat it again, it's like, not during this meal, but after this meal, this is the last time, you know, until the kingdom comes. And so, even though the disciples have heard all the things that are going to pass, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, I'm sure they're hoping like, okay, so does this mean before we have dinner next week, before the next feast, before the next Passover, the kingdom of God's coming? You know, is this, I'm sure there's a little bit of hope there, you know, and, and they sit there and he talks about, hey, this is this, I'm not going to eat or drink of this cup again. But then over this Passover, everything changes. Everything changes for these 12 disciples. Everything changes for the whole world. In verse 19, he says, and he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is my cup of a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, this is totally different. This is shocking. This is radical for him. Um, even to this day, in a Passover, traditional Passover Seder, you know, the bread is brought out, and so, you know, there's a prayer. This is the blood of our, bread of our affection. Give it to the lost. Give it to this. There's a whole tradition for this, and Jesus brings out these symbols that have been symbols for over 1,500 years and says, now here, break this bread. This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. At this point, the disciples are all ears. The tradition's over, and they're wondering what is going on here. He's messing this up, or what, what did he just say? Right? This is my body given for you. This is my blood that's going to be shed for you. You know, and, and it's easy to think from our point of view, we know what happens, we know what goes, we've done communion so many times, but could you imagine hearing this for the first time as you sit there? If your loved one comes and says, hey, my body's going to be broken for you, my blood's going to be shed for you. The pure what would you say? What would your response be? No, it can't happen. What, what would happen at this point, right? The heaviness of the room, the, the, what would be going on, picturing in your mind. But yet, just as the disciples went off and trusted the plan of God, here Jesus is with a fervent desire fulfilling the plan of God in his life. What he came for, what he was designed for, what his heart was to come, to be the Savior, to go to that cross, obedient to the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prays, you know, let this cup pass from me if there be any other way. You know, 33 years of life to come to this point. 33 years of life to come to this point. Verse 21 says, But behold, the hand of my brother or betrayer is 
with me on this table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man whom he is betrayed. It's interesting that here Judas had a free will. We can see his choice. We can see his desire for the money. He goes, he gets the money, but yet these things have been determined. Knowing the heart, knowing what he was going to do has been determined for over 4,000 years. Since the beginning of creation, this day, this hour, his betrayal was known, and yet Jesus selected him, walked with him, loved him, and even, I believe, even after the betrayal, repentance was available to Judas. He had a choice. This did not need to be his end. This one sin did not need to take him out. It was just that sin, self-seeking, self-desire, a rejecting God's will, and at any point he could have repented. Even after this, I believe he could have repented, been in the Garden of Gethsemane, seen Christ on the cross, been there with the twelve. Instead, he misses out on all this, all the fellowship with God, but yet choosing that sin in his life cost him greatly. It says after he sees this, he ends up going back to the temple after he betrays Christ, throwing the money back at him. They reject it. They don't want the money and ends up purchasing a field. And Judas goes out and he hangs himself because he can't handle the cost of the choice he made. It's not what he was created for. It's not what his plan was. The money and those things was very clear to him was of no value. His life, even at that point in his view, was of no value because of his actions. Verse 23, it says, And they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. It's interesting when they sat there and you can sit there and you can look at a situation and go, oh yeah, there's got to be some kind of great evil in this person. There's got to be something, you know, sinister or something. But yet with the 12 men who sat there, who lived and walked among each other for 12 years, they couldn't even figure out which one it would be. Even when in other gospels, when Jesus says, go and go do what you have to, they didn't know why he left. You know, Last time I checked, if you saw somebody running around that was demon-possessed without a free will, there isn't a debate. One out of 12 would be pretty easy to spot, right? It's just that rejection of God's plan for their life. So we see the Jewish leaders rejecting God's plan for their lives and the position and the calling on their lives to be a representation of God to the world, to see the Messiah, to be waiting for the Messiah. We see Judas rejecting God's plan for his life, trying to fulfill happiness in life in his own way. We see Satan rejecting God's creation and design for his life. And then we see these simple two, Peter and John, just simply trusting God and following a simple plan. Nothing great, no grand scale here, right? And then you see Jesus on the grandest scale, on the most amazing thing, following God's plan on his life both ends of the spectrum, right? If I told you, hey, you know, I want you to go find some guy in the city with a pitcher. I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go do it. It's not a hard task, right? And there's no great leap of faith there. To be willing to go to the cross, knowingly go to the cross, to give your life for someone else, to sacrifice your life to serve God's plan in your life. Whew. Both ends of the scale there. 
You know, we, we all, I think we all want to, you know, think, wow, Judas was a monster. I mean, woe to that man. You look how horrible that was. Woe to this person. Sin is a monster. That is. And all of us can be a monster in here. All of us are capable of horrible destruction. All of us are capable of doing what Judas did here. All of us are capable of being just like the chief priests in those things. And it simply comes down to, are you willing to seek yourself and your plan, or are you willing to seek God and His plan for your life? And I think we can kind of all do it on a different scale. And what's amazing is, with the story of Judas, you see the reaction. It's not like a TV show these days. You never see the consequences of sin on a movie, do you? Or if it does, it's made better somehow, you know? They don't ever show the consequences of sin. You know, they show you, you know, they, men who have played football and sports and did physical things. Talk to them when they're old. There are consequences. These pains come back. These things like, you know, relationships, you know, all the things. You know, you see these two people run off in love and they leave their spouse in this situation. And it's like, can't you just do a movie and the closing credit shows the child support check and alimony check after that? Like, hey, by the way, this just happened later. They lived happily ever after and ended up in a lawsuit over the house. And I mean, you just never see the result of those things. But sin does that. Judas was left with nothing. That, that money came to have no value in his life. It had no result. And when you do not seek God's plan and purpose for your life, that's where you're left. What's amazing is we can go through this story and we can now, you know, as you think of Judas Iscariot, you can think, man, somebody just rejected God's plan for his life. But are you going to simply obey God's plan for your life? What is God's plan for your life? You know, it, it, it's amazing to see when you go and you sit. We were up at, um, took some of the kids up because some are f- suffering from chicken pox at home. Up and we uh, got away for a night up in Twain Heart um, at a cabin we could borrow and stuff. And just sitting there, sitting there early in the morning, and it goes, it doesn't matter where you're at. I can be sitting in the beautiful mountains, and I know there's cabins with sinners and mountains. You know, I can be down here in the city and there's two groups of people. It doesn't matter their race or gender or any of those things. There are two groups of people. There are people that are rejecting God's plan for his life, that are lost, that are going to end in destruction, and those that aren't. And those people that are simply obeying God. And it's amazing and a blessing to see those who are simply obeying God and it grieves and you pray for those who are rejecting God's will because we see where it ends. You know, those who are deceived, those who are, you know, insisting to go do something. You know, you see that in little children so many times. They're insisting they want something they can't have or jumping off something, you know, taking little Aaliyah to the lake in the water. You know, she insists to do stuff, and then you realize, no, you cannot breathe underwater. You've got to keep your head above. I mean, no matter how much you want that, you can't have that, you know? especially when they're little. And that's the thing is, what does God create us for? And I think so many times we can get so busy just with life and stuff to go, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And we think of the big thing, well, God wants me to, and so many times it's just such a simple thing, just simple little things, just to be obedient in the little things. Because just like a godly life looks and a righteous life, it's those little choices of obeying God each and every day. And then one day you look back and go, wow, God accomplished that huge 
amazing thing that gives glory to him in my life. All I know was I was simply obeying in these little things and he did all the work. But the same happens with sin. It's a little choice here, a little compromise. I'm just going to, and it'll be okay. It's just, you know, I can deal with this anytime. It's just a little sin, it's okay. And then a little more little justification, a little more justification, a little more justification. And then you've now created something that you cannot bear the cost of. You want to have nothing to do with it, just like Judas, you want to get rid of that money, you don't want to have anything to do with it, and you cannot, your heart cannot even bear what it's done. It's those little choices. And so many times, you know, we talk about reading through the Bible, we got the reading plan out there and stuff, but that's where it comes down to it in the morning. Wake up and go, God, what do you want me to do just today? You know, God's grace is for your past and other people. You're sitting here and you're blowing it, God's grace is for your past. For this morning, for tomorrow morning, for the rest of the day, he calls you to simply obey. Obey. The future, stop worrying about it. He's got that covered. At this point, that Peter and them, they pretty, could be pretty freaked out about the future, right? Could you imagine how scared they were of the things Christ was talking about? The fear? We are going to lose our Savior. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. Is that a scary thing? looking back, isn't that the most amazing thing that's ever happened, right? I'm sure they did not think of that when they were looking at the cross. They weren't, didn't under grasp, man, we're going to be free of sin and death. Now instead of just walking with Jesus, he's going to dwell in us. The whole world is going to forever be changed. We get a, you know, we get to be, you know, we get to partake of his body. We get to remember these things. Enough to where this night would have been pretty scary when he said these things. And Jesus tells us out of all the Old Testament traditions and, and feasts and all these things, remember this. That's why we only, you know, the only biblical tradition we do besides preaching the word, going through it, fellowshipping together is taking communion together. That's it. Easter isn't in there. Thanksgiving isn't in there. Christmas isn't in there. None of those things are in there. Taking Passover, remembering that we have that relationship with him that we are now not just separated from him not that we're walking with him but that now he can dwell in us and guide us that we can have confidence that god's plans working in our lives even when it seems scary even when things seem hard even when your kids all start have chicken pox <laughs> you know you sit there and you sometimes you look at things and just remember go okay god i thought we needed to do all this what do i need to do today you know, sometimes it's just, it's not, you know, definitely not glorious in many senses. I just need to do what? You know, um, you know, I need to just go to work. My wife, you know, Heidi, how many times she goes, oh, I'm just so, it's so hard sometimes. I said, yeah, it's simple obedience. What are we going to do? We're going to get up, help them make the kids do their chores. We're going to do laundry. I mean, <laughs> Ooh, so glorious, right? Just simply obeying God and taking care of your family. But then you see what that builds over time and you see the things God does in your kids' lives and you see those things you would never trade in a life and what's created there and how awesome that is. But the simple little steps don't seem that great sometimes. It's interesting to see, and you know, I didn't get into it too much. You can go through and you can look at, you know, the Passover and the actual blood of Christ and all these things you know, the different views on, 
you know, from Catholicism on this is the actual blood of Christ and they're worried about spilling it so they don't do this. You don't chew the body of Christ because ah, comes the body, blood and body. And then you have Luther that came and said, no, they, everybody should take communion and kind of brought that down to a less of a um, spiritual thing. And then he gets in an argument with the German philosopher, you know, back and forth over, you know, if it's actual or it's just spiritual or all those things. Ultimately, God wants you to remember that his body, he gave himself for you. That he gave himself for you. That his blood for the forgiveness of sin was given for you. Whatever sin you have committed, whatever sin you're going to commit, God has forgiven and paid for. He's loved you enough to give his own body for you. He loved you enough to shed his blood for you. Don't let anything or anybody deceive you on that. That's reality. It is so easy to lose sight of it. That's why I think we're, you know, commanded to take communion, you know, do this as often as you remember me. It's because we can lose sight of that. We get deceived. It's no great sin. We think, I have to take care of myself. Right? I have to provide, and we will go crazy to different lengths to make sure we have enough money, enough retirement, enough whatever, and instead of trusting God with the simple things in life like food and surviving. If he was willing to give his life for you, is he going to take care of us? Yeah. Right? Well, you know, you don't understand how messed up I am. No, he does. He paid for that. He paid for that. Isn't that so hard to grasp when you sit there and you look at yourself and, and just Judas, I mean, gosh, you wish you, man, you wish sometimes Judas, man, if you would have just made it another week to sit there and realize that sin you committed, he paid for. He paid for Judas's sin on that cross. Forgiveness was available to him. The tragedy was Judas ended his own life before. And we sit there and you look at the things and the things wherever you've been at and wherever you've failed, even, you know, I think of, man, there's so many little areas I've blown it, Lord. So many little areas I've rejected your plan I've got sidetracked in these things and you just, you can just get lost in that and you just realize, you know what? He loves me. He's forgiven me. I can just take a deep breath. You know, sometimes it's hard. You get busy during the week and everything else and I just, I get overwhelmed all the little details of this or that instead of just taking a deep breath and trusting him. And that's what he wants us to do. And so I'd encourage you, if you, if you only take a Passover at church, stop. Take it at home. Take that moment in the morning. Just remember he loves you. And to those extents, just take that moment with him. Even Maybe even daily, just wake up and go, God, you loved me this much. You've forgiven me for the previous day. Help me obey today. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for, the, for you, for your sacrifice upon the cross that you were willing just to give your life for us. That we were willing to shed your blood, that we would be forgiven and set free from sin, Father. Help us just to seek you and your plan and your will just for the simple things each and every day in our life. That we would just walk in light of you, in light of your word, 
in light of your plan for our lives, that we would not be self-seeking, God, but help us just to seek you, your plan, and your will. God, that we would be just rejoicing each and every day in who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.